back to the econ for you podcast series. I'm your host, Sanjana, and the aim of my podcast is to interview professionals of different industries in order to understand how we can develop our economy for the better. Be sure to follow the Instagram and Twitter at EFY Podcasts for future updates. So in episode eight of this series, I'm excited to introduce Rosie Collington, a junior researcher at the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Through previously working in health policy and doing medical research on UK patient organisations, Rosie's research has been focused around pharmaceutical innovation. However, in this episode, she will be discussing other aspects of her research, including the economics of data and digitalisation. So, Rosie, please could you introduce yourself and tell us a little more about your role in researching the economics of data and digitalisation? Yeah, absolutely. So thanks again for having me today. I'm really excited to be on the podcast and I think you've had some really great um, interviewees already. Thank you. Um, so yeah, I am based in Copenhagen where I currently work. Oh, I've just finished a master's program and I've also been working as a researcher with Professor Bill Lazonic, who you interviewed in one of your early episodes. Um, and we've, we uh, research the corporate governance of innovative firms so looking at how these companies allocate resources um, and whether they're doing it in a way that is actually that actually generates or or contributes to the development of new um, products that can uh, yeah improve health outcomes um, in the case of pharmaceutical companies Um, or whether you know as Bill has talked about um, before whether they are actually just distributing a lot of their profits towards shareholders, which is not a particularly or is not a productive use of that money. Um, but alongside that role, I have also in the past year been um, doing a big research project on the political economy of public sector digitalization, and I'm also about to start a PhD that's looking at this area. And we can talk a bit about what, what all of that means, I guess, during this interview. Okay. So I'd like to start off with addressing the current economy and how it's being impacted by high reliance on digitalization and technology. So do you think this rise in reliance on technology has actually benefited our economy in the short run, long run or both? And what major changes to the way in which the economy functions have we seen as a result? Yeah, so this is a really good question. I think to begin with, it's worth reflecting on what these technologies are because um, I guess in one sense, humans have always relied on technologies in our society. We've we've always used um, some form of technology in to make stuff or even to organise ourselves and the way we live to, to, to get food, to go to war. That's been a big driver of technological innovation, um, not, not the least in the past hundred years or so. So, um, so it, it, in one sense, we can look at digital technologies in terms of the types of technologies that they are. So these are, they tend to be uh, driven by data um, and technologically different to what came before it. But in another sense, in the sense that I look at these technologies, um, they also present to, present to us as a kind of new, um, with new forms of ownership in terms of um, who is creating, who, who owns these companies and the technologies that they are producing. Um, so I think the question of whether digital technologies 
are on the whole good or bad for the way we live and for the economy is a difficult one because of course many of these new technologies many of these innovations which have been developed through years and decades of collective and commutative learning in both, for example, universities and government-funded research institutions, um, and also in the private sector, many of these technologies are improving welfare outcomes, uh, you know, uh, health outcomes, for example, uh, in the case of many medical technology devices, and also mean that um, many um, illnesses can be treated or can be managed in ways that are less intrusive, perhaps. Um, but as we'll probably discuss a bit, that is nonetheless, even within that, an uh, inequality in, in how these technologies are used. So who is actually using these technologies? But particularly in um, who is owning the means of producing these technologies and therefore how profits from them um, from their set, from the set, from their sale, are actually used in society, and where where that kind of wealth that is made from the sale of these products is distributed. Um, so, yeah, I think that's something that's quite new about the, the digital economy. Okay, um, considering the digital economy, the onslaught of the pandemic has shed more light on big tech companies and what are known as data monopolies. So, like Facebook, for example. So unlike traditional monopolies, these data monopolies, they don't generate high consumer prices, but instead they're free of charge in exchange for personal data. How damaging is this for consumers who don't have control over their personal data? Um, in some ways, these monopolies are kind of similar to, uh, I guess, the types of monopolies that were originally theorised in, um, you know, early um, capitalist economic theory, in that they are not um, monopolies that are not not just monopolies that are um, kind of regula regulated regulatory monop monopolies and that they, they're not just a monopoly because they have a patent or a, a patent over a product but they're monopolies because of um, the extent of their use and how widely used they are um, and uh, these big technology companies have become so big um, because of what are called network effects. Um, and we see this, this, this was also true in many earlier companies. So just the ability that they had initially to get access to social networks and groups of people, that has made it possible for them to grow and become bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, there's this thing that people always say, which is the more people are on Facebook or the more people who started using Facebook, then the bigger it gets, the more people then use Facebook and it just grows and grows and grows. So in this way, they're quite different to other companies that lots of people kind of call monopolies and, and say are monopolies such as pharmaceutical companies that are often really only um, kind of viewed as monopolies or are monopolies to the extent that they have a monopoly right to develop a product. Um, but that said, um, this power that these big tech companies have um, over access to data through their ability and, and the ways that they collect data um, is still a political choice. Um, you know, I, w I would say um, that the biggest issue with these companies is actually not necessarily even their size, but it's the control that they have over the data and the, the and what this control gives them in terms of political power. So um, in, in relation to that, do you think the role of the state means that 
um, any existing regulation should be tightened and do you think the state should introduce new regulations? Yeah, so I mean, what I would really like to see, and there's been a lot of work on this in both academia and also in policy, and um, what I think is would be the best outcome for all of this is for us to develop what's, what are sometimes called data trusts. So this is where instead of a company like Facebook um, or Amazon or Google holding all of this data, which, um, as you kind of mentioned earlier, is produced by consumers, right? This is data that is about us as individuals. It's about our movements through society. It's about our relationships with other people, um, also about the worlds we live in, so um, about the, the streets we inhabit. Um, this data is all socially produced. Sometimes it's produced um, by us as individuals, but what is more important is the data or the meaning of that individual data once it becomes part of an aggregated data set. So this is something that we produce collectively. Um, so once we recognize this, and this is something you know that it, I think more people are, are arguing, once we recognize this, it makes less sense for the control of this data to be monopolized by these companies, to be monopolized by Facebook. And then for that to also be the whole premise of their business model. So for that to be um, literally how they make money. Um, but uh, so I think, I think it's less about regulation and more about essentially rethinking the ownership of this data as a, as a collective asset, as something that we have created collectively. So um, I, I don't necessarily think that implementing stricter rules about um, how Facebook can advertise or how Facebook um, can target people with advertisements, for example, is necessarily going to go far enough. I think we probably need to rethink or develop new, new structures for how we collectively own and control um, data altogether. Okay, so when rethinking this data ownership, um, how roughly how long in in the long run do you think this would take? And surely there'd be a lot of barriers to just um, rethinking data ownership because big tech are so prominent in our society nowadays. Surely they have more power over us rethinking data ownership. So how how would the logistics of it actually work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and this this is one of the challenges of having these companies that have a genuine monopoly, right? That have the, because it gives them a lot of power. Um, also, in, increasingly, these companies are um, acting in ways that governments may want to be a part of. So they might be collecting data that is also useful to governments um, because they have a monopoly over. Um, these kind of data infrastructures as well, so the means of collecting data. Um, so I think in, in the short term, there definitely need to be um, reg regulations introduced. I'm not saying that more regulation is a bad idea, and we're seeing lots of kind of really new, great ways of um, thinking in terms of this. So actually a really nice model that has was developed in Barcelona a few years ago and has now also evolved in other municipalities are where uh, where there is a public-private partnership between a, um, a municipality body in Barcelona and a private sector actor, so like Vodafone, for example, um, all of the data that that private sector actor collects about the citizens must be returned to the state so that it's, and its use can then be, collect, can be collectively used, because it is an asset, right? This stuff yeah. can be used. Yeah. Um, 
as we might talk about, this stuff can be used um, to actually develop products, to, to, to innovate um, and to do things that are maybe in our collective interest. But at the moment, the decisions about how it's being used because of these ownership, because of, these, uh, monopol- because of this monopolist ownership, the decisions about how it's being used are made by um, a few companies, essentially. Okay. So um, before we started this interview, I was just having a look at my economics notes and I realised that we, when we learned the four basic factors of production, we learned that they were land, labour, capital and entrepreneurship. So basically inputs that are used in the production of goods and services in order to generate a profit. So I was thinking, is there a possibility in the future that data could also be a factor of production? Because as you're mentioning in Barcelona, for example, like data has become such a big asset. So um, considering the prominent role it's playing in our modern society, could it be added as a factor of production itself? So there are already a few um, kind of accounting metrics or a few kind of innovative, you could call them, accounting metrics that are trying to do this actually and, and mm. look at the role of data um, mm. as, as an asset for companies. But also in, in, in uh, economics more widely, it's, it's increasingly... You, or it's increasingly recognised that it is an asset both for companies and also for um, many states which themselves hold extensive kind of population-wide um, population-wide uh, data sets, for example, or um, registries like exist in Denmark where I'm based. Um, so, for example, Denmark's cancer registry and other medical registries that exist are among the most extensive in the world. Um and when we talk about this as being an asset, I think it's worth reflecting on or worth widening what we mean by that, to not just uh, kind of thinking of it in monetary terms, because, of course, to lots of pharmaceutical companies or other medical um, uh, private uh, healthcare companies, this this uh, data can be hugely uh, valuable um, financially. It can be a financial asset, but for populations, this data can also be a really important source of knowledge or information that can then be used, as, as I mentioned earlier, to develop new products and new technologies um, that might actually benefit them as well. Um, so I think it is being viewed as as an asset already, and especially in um, you know national industrial strategies as well across Europe that we've seen over the past few years, uh, national welfare state data sets are increasingly seen as as, as an asset um, that can be used for um, yeah in, industrial growth. Okay, so you mentioned the welfare state. Do you think that there's any impact of data and digitalization on the welfare state, which means that? it can lead to long-term inequality because obviously people have different access to different technologies. Some people might use services such as Facebook and Google more than others tend to, which means that their personal data is more likely to be abused. So is there some sort of like inequality created as a result? Yeah, this is a really good and really big question. So mm-hmm. I'm, I won't uh, kind of go in go into it uh, too much because otherwise we'll probably be here for an hour. Yeah. Um, but this is also what my research looks at or part of what my research looks at. Um, so there are a few ways that we can see this. The first one is, as you mentioned, access to the technologies uh, and the impact that that can have on on inequality and outcomes among different populations. So if we take a technology like Fitbit, right? Yeah. Um, there is there is still it, it's still it's still not um, kind of totally clear 
what um, population health or what health um, improvement uh, owning a Fitbit device or something like that can offer because there tend to be a lot of other factors that mm. might uh, contribute to someone's to, to someone who actually has the means to own a Fitbit um, uh, would improve that outcome. So other factors like just the fact of where they live in the UK or, or what what their, um, I don't know, whether they're obese or whether they smoke, all of these other things. But say that we had a technology like Fitbit that actually we, and we could find that people who were able to um, monitor their, their heart using one of these technologies um, actually did it, that, that actually did improve their or, or reduce their chance of having a cardiovascular um, ha- getting cardiovascular disease or having a heart attack because they were able to identify arrhythmias or abnormalities. Mm-hmm. So say that this was um, possible at present, you know, Fitbit is, uh, uh, you know, £100 or something to yeah. purchase and, and lots of similar technologies um, are, are also expensive or have subscription costs um that are way way above what most people can afford. So if there were a technology, and we probably will see more technologies that do actually have provable health benefits um, in the next couple of years or in the next decade, and when these come out, if there if some of them are provided privately rather than by the National Health Service, for example, then we are likely to see uh, inequality of outcomes. But then there are also lots of other challenges around, for example, just as I discussed in the beginning, that the development of many of these technologies or all of these technologies actually um, require private sector involvement. And that's something that's quite new about this kind of development in, in the history of the welfare state is that Previously, the welfare state has tended to have capabilities to do things on its own. So it hasn't been reliant on the private sector. Mm. Um, and there's been lots of pushback when the private sector has been involved in the, in the public sector yeah. um, with, for example, PFIs in the UK or other public-private partnerships. Um, but if the state wants to digitalise, well, today it has to work with the private sector. Um, but it's still not always completely clear what the uh, kind of closer involvement of um, IBM or Google or other companies or even like smaller local startups, locally based startups, what impact overall the increased involvement of these technologies, of these companies and technological um, uh, uh, technological companies will have on the kind of existing democratic accountability levers that exist within welfare states that most people think are quite important. So that's a different way of thinking of it. It's, it's not to say that it's necessarily bad um, or to say that we should cease um, digitalizing or developing these technologies, but it's just worth reflecting on and, and, and kind of mitigating. Okay, yeah. So I, find the, I found the uh, reliance on the private sector thing quite interesting because it's not something that we actually realise, but it's almost kind of become a necessity now to rely on the private sector and use some sort of cooperation between private public sectors in order to get a good outcome so yeah um i think that brings me to the end of my questions um thank you for joining us and it's great to see all the work you put in for your research with um, professor lazonic and i'm sure many members of my audience will be inspired by your views so thank you for joining us today thank you i hope it made sense thanks a lot thank you so that brings us to the end of today's podcast i hope you have enjoyed listening to our guest speaker today 
Be sure to follow the Instagram at EFY Podcast and I hope you enjoyed listening to our discussion.